0: What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Jonathan B. He's a startup founder, philosopher, and a mathematician. Rene Girard is one of the most popular philosophers in Silicon Valley. Why is it that an obscure French polymath from the 1900s would become one of the most influential and cited thinkers amongst founders, CEOs, and leaders in high-growth companies? Thankfully, Jonathan has dedicated the last half-decade to studying his work. Expect to learn how Gerard believes that mimetic desire drives almost all of our behavior, why breaking out from the group to do your own thing doesn't mean that you're an individual, how having sex can end up being not for the enjoyment of sex, why Peter Thiel and so many others love Gerard's work, how understanding Gerard can improve your daily life, and much more. It's an interesting thing to consider how one man can be so influential and whether his theory about mimesis and about mimetic desire actually explains about why he's so popular in the first place. Don't forget, if you are listening, there is a free copy of the Modern Wisdom Reading List waiting for you on the other side of the internet. All that you have to do is go to chriswillex.com slash books. It's 100 books that you should read before you die, the most interesting and impactful books that I've ever found, and it'll subscribe you to my 3-Minute Monday newsletter as well. Go to Chriswillex.com slash books slash books to download your copy for free right now. That's com slash books. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Diet Smoke. legal THC gummies. Their signature gummy is optimized with Delta 8 hemp-derived THC, which is how they've managed to perfect the ultimate manageable high. Each Diet Smoke gummy is infused with 10 milligrams of American-made hemp-derived Delta 8 THC. All of Diet Smoke's gummies are third-party lab-tested to ensure quality for every single batch. They come in two delicious flavors, blue raspberry and watermelon. You don't need a medical card or a license to order Diet Smoke as it is 100% percent legal. And if you're not 100 percent satisfied, Diet Smoke will give you your money back, no questions asked. They ship to all U.S. states where Delta 8 is legal. They cannot ship to Alaska, Colorado, Delaware, Idaho, Iowa, Montana, Rhode Island, or Vermont. However, if you go to dietsmoke.com and enter the code MW20 in any of the other states, you'll get 20 percent off everything site-wide, and you'll be able to get this delivered right to your door with the 100% no-questions-asked satisfaction guarantee, dietsmoke.com, and the code MW20 for 20% off everything. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by... Element. The best way to start your day is with Element. In water, first thing in the morning, it is formulated to help anybody with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited no matter whether you're following a keto, low-carb, paleo, or a vegan diet. They contain a science-backed electrolyte ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium with no junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, And no BS. Element is the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA weightlifting, special forces, Navy SEAL teams, FBI sniper teams, and Marines, plus tech leaders and everyday athletes around the world. If you haven't already tried waking up and doing this first thing in the morning, it is the best way to start your day. I've done it for over two years, ever since I found out about it. And it is, it's my favorite, my favorite thing. I look forward to it every single morning. You can get a free sample pack with your first box. All that you need to do is head to drinklmnt.com slash wisdom. Pick your first box and they will send you a free sample pack of all eight flavors. Plus they have the most robust no questions asked refund policy where you don't even have to return the product and there is an unlimited duration. That is how confident they are that you will love Elements products. Drinklmnt.com slash wisdom. But now, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jonathan B. Jonathan B, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Chris. Excited to be on.
0: So the first time that we met was through David Perel, actually, and we went out for dinner. Now David is a man who has two modes of uh, culinary experience, and he either goes uh, Chick Fil A or fighting hobos outside of a food truck, or he goes to the most expensive steak restaurant in town. I've noticed this since spending time with him right. that he's got he's very sort of barbelly when it comes to what he wants to do with food. Uh, but thankfully, we went to the we went to the nice nice steak restaurant.
1: Yeah, although I, I wouldn't mind uh, fight, fighting for a taco uh, next time with you when I'm in Austin. So
0: David, David's oddly uh, experienced at that, which is right. Uh, Concerned, but yeah, he took incredible me,
1: given how small and scrawny he is. Well, that's sure, true. Sure look, look he's he's, he's
0: <laughs> got a new girlfriend that's like training him up or something, She's making him eat yeah. like a surplus of calories. Uh, yeah. He once took me for lunch at some French place on Congress, and I was in flip flops and a pair of shorts, and it was just wags and like little tiny model dogs. But anyway, anyway, enough about David Perel. Um are you trained in Rene Girard, the philosopher? Have you got some sort of like Girardian accreditation?
1: Uh perhaps I have the most Girardian of accreditations, which is uh, you know, being self taught. Um Girard himself was trained in uh history in Indiana University, and before that he was an archivist in, in France, but uh, you know, he, he neither made any contributions to you know our, our, uh, being a librarian or uh, history, and the avenues that he did make significant contributions to uh, in, in you know in anthropology, in theology, in psychology, he was all self-taught. So uh, I suppose the answer, that that's a nice way of saying no. But um, followed in his saying, footsteps,
0: did it the yes, right way. Yes,
1: I, uh, I I was trained in um, uh, continental philosophy, um, and however. Ah, uh, Girard is just not read at all in the in the academy, uh, unless in literary criticism. Um, and so, I, I was sort of introduced to Girard as a, as a sophomore, and I had to read the Girardian canon, so to speak, myself with a couple of friends. Of course, that's what always makes the
0: journey fun. Who is he, and what's the core insight of his work? Yeah,
1: so uh, he recently passed away in 2015, but his life is probably not as interesting as as his, as his uh, key insights are. And I would say that his most fundamental insight is we don't often desire things for the things themselves, but for what the things say about us. And the way he makes this argument is to delineate two types of desire, physical desire, which, he, which is directed at the object, and metaphysical desire, which is directed at what the object uh, says about me. Let me give you some quick examples. You know, take any activity, really, and we can see both strands of desire at work in different circumstances if I desire to you know, have sex, for example, it could be for pleasure, it could be for intimacy, experiences in the moment, and that would be for physical desire, a desire for experience. But I can also desire to have sex uh, for what having sex with a certain type of person says about me, right? And this is how, as you would know it, from uh, you know, being in nightlife, how a lot of people do live their lives, right? They're not really in it for the pleasure, they're in it because they wanna be someone. And that's the psychology of the, the Casanova or the, or, the, or, the, or the Don Juan or the Coquette. And this, uh, it, this sort of insight expands across all of our decisions, right? We could you know, take on a job because of what the job says about us, but we could also take on the job because we actually like the activity in and of itself. And so that is Girard's core insight, that there's two different strands of desire. And the dominant strand, metaphysical desire, is actually not aimed at the object itself, but what the object says about me. It's a desire to be rather than a desire
0: to experience. Now, go ahead. Is this different to signaling or how does this relate to signaling?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because it's almost signaling to oneself in some sense, right? Because it's, uh, you know, the person who's motivated by metaphysical desire, even if no one sees you, uh, you know, having sex with a really beautiful woman, you are still rewarded by that. Whereas when we commonly think about signaling, Uh, the the reward is always external. Now, just let me elaborate a bit more on on this concept of metaphysical desire because I think we need to draw the implications a bit more. When we ask Girard, when we poke him really hard and say, well, what do we really want to be, right? What is this desire to be really aimed at? Girard thinks we all desire to exist in great measure. So perhaps not unlike Nietzsche's will to power, Girard identifies a key human motivational force as this unrelenting drive to establish ourselves, to be greater than life, even in seemingly non-prideful and ordinary individuals. Girard thinks we want to establish our being to be the most real, like a social reality, Social reality, like being, being seen and being recognized, to be long-lasting and permanent, right? The denial of death and wanting to leave a legacy. And also the, the last one is, is, is to exert power in our, in our social world. Now, Girard thinks that this type of being is terribly elusive and we can never achieve it. So he's very pessimistic on the human condition that we're just uh, pushed by this drive that we can never fully satisfy. And for this, for him, this is what it means to, be, to live in original sin. Now, the last point that I'll make, I know I've been rambling on for a long time, is how do we satisfy this drive? And that's where uh, mimesis comes into play. We satisfy this drive, this desire to be, to exist in great measure, by obtaining objects associated with models who we already conceive of as existing in great measure, be it a celebrity, be it a a, a slightly more established coworker, be it attractive man or woman. We look for models around in the world to tell us what we should want, what is in the core of our identity. And I think this is no uh, in no other place is this better established than in celebrity advertisement. And the one line that I think that always gives it away for me is Jordan Sneaker's taglines. Be like Mike. The advertisements of basketball sneakers tell you nothing about the physical qualities of the basketball sneakers—the bounce, the lightness, the grip, or even the price—but it's promising you something you want all the more, being be like Mike. And so that is is Gerard's sort of core psychological system from which all of his social anthropologi- anthropological and eschatological insights eventually flow from.
0: Gerard should have been a nightclub promoter; he would have crushed it in the nightlife game. So. Here's an interesting example that I like to use. You decide not to go on a night out with a bunch of your friends. Your friends yeah. go on the night out, they wake up the next morning, they're hungover, but a little bit later on, once they've got their pizza order out of the way, you give someone a ring or you give them a text and you say, Hey man, how was last night? So many times, the first thing that someone will reply with will be, dude, it was awesome. There were so many girls there last night. You go, hang on. I asked how the night was. I didn't right. ask who the other consumers of the thing that you were consuming were. So right. m- people that buy an iPhone mostly don't buy an iPhone because David Beckham also has an iPhone. They buy an yeah. iPhone for the core competence that the product gives them. It's got a camera and it can make calls and it's got good battery life and stuff like that. Whereas- I
1: wouldn't be so sure about that. I mean, think about all the cases of uh, people selling their livers for an iPhone. I-, I imagine they're not doing a rational analysis saying, oh, my liver is worth for you know the, the camera, the- all-, all this stuff. I do think the iPhone is actually a great example of or actually you and I might purchase it for physical desire, right? but I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think for a lot of people, it is a sort of status symbol. It is a sort of metaphor. I would agree
0: design. as as a status symbol. You're probably right there, but certainly when you compare it to a night a nightclub event, you're like totally the 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 core feature of the product that is going on a night yeah. out is the other consumers of the product. You can go on a night out to the same event week on week. The DJ could play the same set. The sound and the lights could be exactly the same. The drinks prices could be the same. The service could be the same. But if you change the other people that go and consume that product, because they are such a big influence on your night, and it's not just some sort of woo, ephemeral, like... uh, Status signaly thing—they actually right. impact your night in a physical way. Like if there's loads of guys that are aggressive and dancing totally. in the club, like that actually changes your experience. So it's not totally, totally woo, but it is the most important thing about nightlife are the other people that consume that product. And it, it's so interesting to see that because you go, well, hang on, what does this mean from a product design perspective? It means that actually, what I need to do is create a product, not that's the best but that attracts people that other people want to be around. So for a lot of nightclubs, that means getting girls in. If you bring girls in, girls don't have a problem with more girls, but both girls and guys have a problem with more guys.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, first thing I'll say is I think we should be extremely comfortable thinking about the context of Gerard within uh, romance and dating because it's romance and dating where he goes to his canonical examples as well. And I think perhaps a reason... Uh, he, he, he goes there, is that we traditionally think that in romance and in dating, that's where our physical urges are the strongest, right? Will could be a strong motivator with sex? But even in this domain, Gerard shows, if you'll excuse a pun, that our desires are helplessly penetrated by the desires of others, right? Even in such a domain that's dominated by a physical strong desire, we can be hopelessly mediated by the other people. Just think about our other sort of less strongly physical domains political intuitions, philosophical opinions, uh, and, and all the rest. The other thing I'll say is, and I, I read a pretty interesting book called The Very Important Persons. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's an oh, by Ashley Mears?
0: Yes. She's yes, been she, on the show. Yeah, right, she was great. Right. You
1: know what? I actually, I actually know that because I think I, I went from the show to, to the book. And, and that's exactly what the book says, right? The way that you get guys to spend is you get uh, more women there. You add the gaze of the woman that um, sort of enable the men to be more competitive with each other. And, and drive bottle service.
0: What you so, see in nightclubs specifically, we didn't do this. So we ran events that were high volume, low cost. We, yeah. were, we were putting 1,000 to 2,000, 18 to 21 year olds in. So it wasn't about bottles and, and shows. Although we've dabbled in a little bit of that. And obviously I've been to my fair share of events like that. What you'll see in nightclubs, and anyone can go and check this out. If you're in a city like Miami or New York that has big bottle shows type events, look at the way that they position the most expensive tables in the club. They're always within uh, seeing distance of each other. Right. Reason being that you want to have one table start to dick measure with the other. They want to order a medium sized show to begin with, probably probably a little bit bigger than they anticipated because they want a little bit of that conspicuous consumption going on. But then another table's like, "Yo, fuck that, dude, get the amex out. Let's 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 wipe those guys under the table." And then you have this game back and forth. So in a couple of venues, they'll be opposite each other, like the most antagonistic way that you could position people, but they're always going to be able to see each other because you want to create that competition.
1: Yeah, yeah. And let me uh, pull us even a bit further in the theory because we're all, I think we're all giving examples, good examples of instances where mimesis and metaphysical desire makes us converge. But the other, and I think people commonly uh, misunderstand this in Gerard, the opposite is true as well. Metaphysical desire can also uh, enable us to diverge from the group, because it's almost the same extension of the same logic. right? The logic of metaphysical desire that I just said was do we want to acquire objects associated with models with a heightened degree of being? Well, the inverse logic is true as well. We also want to distance ourselves away from objects associated with models with a deficiency of being. I mean, a trite way to say this is we want to wear the same brands of the sneakers as the cool kids in high school, but also want to make damn sure that we don't wear the same brands as the as the not cool kids, right, a, as the social outcasts in high school. And so mimesis can equally lead us to diverge as it leads us to converge. And I think a great example here I'll, I'll give you is this. I was in college and I had an acquaintance from freshman year, and he was very concerned with distributive justice. So, so think progressive economics. And and you know, I thought, you know, w- w- what a kind guy. He's always caring about the poor and. And, uh, you know, I got, got to know him a lot better. And, and this acquaintance confessed to me uh, that uh, in sophomore year that uh, he, he was actually very motivated by the hatred of his richer peers uh, <laughs> rather than the direct caring uh, of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the poor. Um, in fact, he, he grew up in a, he was a middle class and grew up in an upper middle class uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, school district. And it was out of that resentment that he basically just flipped the logic of the people that he resented on its head. And, and you, you know, what's really funny with these types is he's now uh, in investment banking, right? Because he, he didn't have a problem with making a lot of money at all. In fact, the reason he loathed it so much was because he wanted it so much, but there were people sort of stopping him there. And so um, the, the reason I thought this was important important highlight is because I think our societies are very conscious of uh, conformity, as being inauthentic right as being determined by the group but there's a form of divergence from the group out of this resentment that i see proliferating in society today that is just as inauthentic and just as determined by the group no less than pure conformity and so mimesis and metaphysical desire really entrap us in every direction we go and this romantic line that gerard thinks we're all in is that we have this authentic core of the self with these social layers added on. And all we have to do is peel back these social layers. But Gerard says, not so fast. You're confusing originality, originality and difference for authenticity. But that is not so. And I just want to make sure that we highlight that as well.
0: Is that the positive and negative mimesis? Is that how that's yes, labeled? Precisely. So there's a positive phase of mimesis where you're
1: converging to the model. And then there's a negative phase of mimesis where you want to diverge from the model.
0: Yeah, it's... Um... It's strange when you think about what the real motivations are for the things that you do. How yeah. much How much is it that I'm believing the things that I believe or wanting the things that I want because other people want them or yeah. because other people that I don't like want them? Like how much am I pushing away from stuff I don't want to be right. like and how much am I going towards things that I do? There's a, a – Eric Weinstein calls it reflexive heterodoxy that – whatever the mainstream narrative is, whatever's opposite to that must be true because always the mainstream is lying. And you go, well, that's just as low resolution. Like That's no more sophisticated. It's still a one and a zero. The only difference is you chose the zero instead of the one. Yeah, yeah.
1: Or or another way to to put it, the way I I thought about it's one and negative one, right? You want to be not correlated. You want to be zero. You want to be like not correlated to the group, but instead you're just sort of flipping everything uh, on, on its head. And my point is, and I think what you're saying is agreeing with this, uh, in society we can easily identify conformity as being inauthentic, as being determined by the group. Um, But people are just starting to gain a sort of awareness of why uh, uh, sort of carving one's own path and have a bold breaking away from the group can be just as uh, fraught and
0: inauthentic. Going back to the dating example, one of the common pieces of advice for people when they're creating their Tinder profile is to have photos with other women or other men. Right. If you're a girl with other guys, if you're a guy with other girls, because that shows that you are somebody that is already around. That I need you don't want to choose like the worst looking yeah. friends that yes. you've got, right? You're going to choose what look like high value friends.
1: Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I I don't think Gerard would have much more to say than the ground that we've already covered, right? We want to show uh, people we consider to have. To- a higher degree of being as already desiring, desiring us, um, and you know this is the logic behind why you know more attractive and seemingly successful people are used behind advertisements.
0: Right? There's also a um, a funny sort of cascading effect that you see. Someone that isn't a particularly good-looking guy in celebrity culture will start to go out with some girl who is super hot, and everyone will go, "Hang on a second, what's he doing with her? That's a little bit strange." If they break up, his next three girlfriends are always absolute smoking hot winners. It's okay. Well, what, what, why is that? Well, it's like well, that person must have noticed something about this guy that nobody else was able to see, yeah. and then there's sort of this like mimetic echo that goes over time because super high status girl number one, and then two, and three, and four.
1: Yeah, and and I think you're you're really hitting at the intuition of the world and the very strange world that Gerard is leading us towards. Um, it's not a world where, you know, we use reason or even we use our own experience to really diligence things, to see the true essence of things. But it's, it's a world of associations, right, that, that we make decisions uh, through through associations. And, and that, I think, is a you know, trite and reductionist, but I think accurate uh, intuition of what world we're stepping into.
0: What drew you to Gerard? You've dedicated a lot of time to thinking and learning about one guy.
1: You know, I, I grew up as a STEM science person, um, and I think a problem with the intellectual co- uh, current uh, of today is that we're underappreciating the social dimensions of the self. And, and this is an argument that you're going to hear from the, the left and the right, by the way. Um, the, you know, maybe, maybe this will help. You know, Plato had a conception of the soul as being consisting of three parts— right? There's appetite. We've discussed desire for sex, for food, pleasure. There's reason that we know very well. And then there's spirit, right? The soul, the part of the soul that desires social goods, honor, glory, fame. And if I, even if this concept is not reflective of the most uh, uh, sophisticated academic positions of the day, I think uh, the popular cultural current conceives of humans completely removed of the spirited part of the soul. It conceives of humans as rational utility maximizing machines. And I think, you know, how many times have you heard this said in Silicon Valley? You know, we're about robots trying to maximize happy chemicals squirting in our brains. Or take how uh, GDP is important as a measure, almost like the ultimate measure of, of a country's sort of accomplishment, right? Because GDP is fundamentally that. its It's the ability to quantify our appetite. And what I think Gerard does is Girard's psychology really spells out the uh, third and, you know, from my perspective, hidden part of, of human nature, and that's the social spirited part. So put it another way, Girard reveals the logic of our illogical part of ourselves, or he rationalizes our irrationalities. And, and, and this has devastating consequences, not just about how we ought live our lives, but even in geopolitical events. An example that I gave you, and I you know, gave in the, the first lecture where you know your listeners are more than welcome to, to listen to, it's, it's out today, is China. Now, in the uh, late, in the 90s, and certainly in the 2000s, the dominant view of the West was that the economic liberalization of China would be welcomed by the world. And the long short of the argument would be, you know, China's rise would also make the West uh, richer through cheaper goods and that people would be happy with this rise. Now, you can fundamentally see that the assumption here is that we are rational utility maximizing creatures. If we get 3 Oreos for $3, you know, we're, we're less happy than if we get 4 Oreos for $3. But Girard went against the public opinion. In 2007, this was the height of Sino-American optimism. He went against the crowd and he said that uh that China's that even if China did make Uh, the West richer, which is what ended up happening as relativistic social creatures concerned more for social standing. The closing of the gap is what both parties will focus on. The Chinese will not be happy, be be much happier that they are closer to Americans. Instead, the fact that they're closer makes them more envious. And the same is true for the West, that the fact that they are absolutely richer matters very little to a drop in relativistic comparison. And so it's this fundamentally different alien but I think more revealing lens of viewing humans not as rational agents but as social spirited creatures is is why Gerard was so uh so pulled me in
0: was that a big shock given that you were coming from a stem background oh it was
1: a tremendous shock but it was also why it was uh you know really interesting I feel like if I you know had grew, grown up with that intuition in mind, then all of this would be obvious. and and it kind of seems obvious to me now, right after after studying for him for so long. But uh, yeah, it was a tremendous shock. And um you know Gerard really is, and I can't emphasize this enough, attacking the fundamental pillars of the modern West. because think about what the answer to the question, where does normative authority? Where do we gain assurance of our values? Gerard's answer is, the dominant force is through by looking at other people. But what does the modern West say? There's two answers. One, speaking in very broad strokes here, is the enlightenment, reason. We use reason to figure that out. The other, again, very broadly here, romanticism, that there's a, a core of authenticity. But as we've already discussed, both Gerard uh, subsumes under the power of the social part of ourselves, that we are fundamentally social creatures. We are like co-vibrating violin strings. And this, uh, and we probably don't have time to talk about this, but the political implications uh, are, are are just tremendous and and really really earth shattering for 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 the modern West.
0: How does understanding Girard make life better then?
1: Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is Girard is going to be very unsatisfying if you're looking for him to, to give you prescriptive answers. The, the the real prescriptive answer that he that he tells you is to withdraw, to leave the world behind. In his later book, he would hold Holderlin a 19th-century German poet who literally, pun intended, holed himself up in a tower for the last decades of his life as the example par excellence. Now, I have obviously have not been satisfied with that response. I'm not holed up in a tower. And so I thought a lot about the implications of, uh, of his theory and how out how, how we live given that, And I have a few sort of broad-stroke answers here. The first answer I'll give is um, just the mere fact of gaining awareness of the social dimension of ourselves and the logic of mimesis is tremendously helpful it's not helpful that it will stop making you be mimetic right away but it will give you the foresight to avoid bad situations because you can see them coming from a mile away and the analogy i like to use is you know there was a military theorist john boyd and he said something like i don't have to paraphrase that great fighter pilots use their superior judgment to make sure they never have to get into situations to use their superior force. And I think the same is true for understanding memetic theory. It doesn't give you uh, the ability to just snap your fingers and and not be social creatures, but it does give you the the foresight uh, to to see bad situations coming and potentially avoid it. So that's the first thing I'll say. Just just rational understanding is, is tremendously helpful. The second thing I'll say is that These two separate desires, physical desire, right, the desire for the object activity in itself, the desire for experience, metaphysical desire, desire for being. For Gerard, this metaphysical desire, uh, I'm sorry, this physical desire, while not always being good, right, you can be gluttonous and that can ruin you. um, But this metaphysical desire is almost always bad. That it will just lead you from one wild goose hunt to the next. And so one immediate and quite simple conclusion there is, well, let's find activities where I like in and of itself, right? And for me, this was switching from, uh, and, and again, both degrees, but switching from CS to, 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 to philosophy. And I think it's helpful for our listeners to conceive of these two desires as really fighting for real estate. And so the, the more you push one, or the more that a physical desire is there, the less you have to draw on uh, for metaphysical desire. And so for me, switching to an activity philosophy that was much more interesting to me, um, it meant that I didn't have to pull on the motivational forces of of social prestige and social affirmation as much. Um, so, so that, that that's the, the second way. Um, the third is, you know, one can decrease metaphysical desire directly. And I think there's two ways to do that and remember metaphysical desire is simply a very prideful drive right a wanting to be greater than life and i think the two ways to do that one is failure if you have ever just failed so hard an activity that you feel your entire ego and self is shattered anyone who's gone through something like that knows that that's there's an you know opportunity to to, to be more humble and let go of pride but i think the inverse is true as well is to achieve the thing that you always wanted to do and see it as, as deeply lacking, right? This, uh, this, the way out is through, so to speak, it, almost a form of personal accelerationism. Um, and the last thing I'll, I'll probably say is, if you think that you can escape from mimesis, from wanting recognition, then you really haven't realized how deeply this drive is embedded into the human nature, that, that, that you would fundamentally be uh, irrecognizable without it. It's like asking, you know, what would a human look like if they didn't breathe, right? It's just, it's just constitutive of what a human is. And so, what, what I would warn people, um, and this is what, what I also was trying to get at with negative imitation, uh, negative mimesis, is that don't try to be a loner. Uh, the solution isn't to escape from all forms of social construction, but to find a type of social, social construction that, from a sober perspective, uh, influences and directs you to the type of desires that you actually want. Practically speaking, uh, it's you know finding a bunch of friends who who also like to do philosophy with you or w- whatever your sort of passion is. Um, and so th- th- those are the things that I would uh, that I would say like how what are the immediate things that we we can do f- from this theory?
0: Is mimesis falsifiable? This seems a little bit to me like you do the thing that everybody else does. That's mimesis you do the thing opposite to everybody else does, that's negative mimesis. It seems to me a little bit like Gerard might have been a bit sort of sneaky with his unfalsifiable theory here.
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question. But the first thing I'll say is not every act is mediated by the group, right? Again, you can pursue sex for pleasure itself, not because of what it says about you or not because of any sort of social force. So there's a large swath of activity that is neither uh, positive nor negative mimesis, right? So, so we don't have to, in other words, we don't have to label everything as, as positive and, and negative um, mimesis. And But I think you, you bring up a very interesting and broader point, which is, what is the nature of proof in Girard? Um, and I think when you get to these you know, philosophical theories, as you do Hegel uh, or, or maybe Nietzsche, I think the only form of proof that is available, perhaps, um, I might walk back on that statement, but I think the only, or the strongest form of proof available is introspection. Right? Try to, what Gerard is saying here is he's giving you almost a literary argument. You know, I'm going to write these 20 books about human nature, and you go read them. But just just humor me when you read them. Just pretend that they're true. And use apply them to your life and see whether it's revealing or not. And through that process the 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 real force of proof comes from revelation right it it becomes revelatory that it's able to explain phenomena and direct you in ways that actually end up working um that's the first thing i'll say and and that's where the power of draught really came from me and how i got convinced was introspection uh but in terms of mimesis there actually has been uh empirical work done on this Um, I'm I'm blanking on the name of the of the uh, scientists, but uh, there was studies of of babies and they showed how, you know, babies started imitating the facial features of uh, of humans, uh, of other adults ever since, you know, 25 minutes old. Um, And there's, you know, I think in the late 20th century, there was a big boom in neuroscience with mirror neurons. Um, And some Girardians have used that as the biological basis. Of of mimesis. Um, So so there are sort of those empirical routes that one can take, and I think uh, if I dedicated my life to studying this that I I really should take. Uh, But for me, at least, to answer the question of why Girard was worth engaging for me, the sort of introspection um, was more than enough for me to continue engaging.
0: It seems like Girard's view of human nature is um, not... not um as vulnerable or fallible it seems like we're incredibly fallible in his eyes oh terribly so i would say so but talk to me you've read his work it's been hugely influential on you it's taken you from being this sort of super rational stem person to a slightly less rational but perhaps a little bit more rounded philosophy person how how do you feel um enlightened Or fulfilled by a theory which kind of points the finger at you and says how easily fallible you are
1: yeah i think that's a that's a great question um and i can give two answers one is um how has that changed my view to uh society and the other is how has it changed my view to myself um and i'll answer the first one first because i think it's more interesting um uh What Gerard is doing here is he's giving us a theodicy. As you can see, and as we already covered in the brief 30, 40 minutes, he thinks that humans, to your point, are deeply fallible. so much so that he's giving us a psychology of original sin, what it means to be fallen creatures, right? This idea that we're motivated by an unrelenting drive that we can never satisfy, um, that we, we're not even aware of, that we say we want to be an investment banker, but we really don't want that, we want something else. a terrible terrible thing right and it it only gets worse and worse there's so many different social pathologies like math uh, or psychological social pathologies like masochism and bipolarity that gerard identifies as not just contingent not not as accidental but as always existing in human nature gerard rejects this uh uh, modern psychoanalytical approach to label certain diseases as discrete things. You know, you're schizophrenic or you're not, you're bipolar you're not. Instead, he sees all of human nature as one of, on a degree of pathology, that we're all masochistic, we're all bipolar. Now, I would actually argue, and this might be, but might be weird, but hear me out, that this is quite a liberating and hopeful way to, to view society. Um, and the reason is... Um, let me give you an, let, me, let me give you an example. So Gerard's argument for why, you know alienation and fetishization, you know these are two concepts that uh, uh, Marxist thinkers are very concerned with. Um, his Girard's argument is that both of these things are not due to the structure of capital, but due to the structure of human nature. And I think it's very easy to see, right? What is fetishization? It's a desire for the object more than what the object can give us. Well, that's just met metaphysical desire, right? And what is alienation? It's alienating the best qualities of ourselves into an object. Reasoning, once we get close to that object, we will attain it. Again, that's just metaphysical desire. And so Girard would say to a Marxist, for example, um, that, you know, you're right in identifying that alienation and fetishization exist in contemporary capitalism. And you're even right that they're channeled through capitalism. But you'd be deluded in thinking that uh, they're caused by, by capitalism their roots are much deeper in the fundamental human condition. And that is what happened when people try to liberate themselves from capitalism, right? The alienation uh, from the, pro- the process of labor in British coal mines became the alienation from the Soviet factories. And so uh, what, what Gerard is doing here is given a fundamentally fallen picture of human nature that sees many social pathologies as natural to the human condition. But then, I know Chris. The question in your mind must be, why is Jonathan saying that this is a good thing? Why is it helping him reconcile it with the world? It allows us to see the world and and say, this is all that humans can be, and allows us to affirm it. Let me give you the opposite sort of uh, argument here. You know, you know, I, I heard this one, uh, uh, you know, pr- progressive newspaper line uh, about sort of asians being very upset that their names were mispronounced um and you know obviously i you know as as, as an immigrant myself i've had those experiences and it, it, it doesn't feel good but what i found really odd about that argument is that people can't really make certain sounds after the critical stage of language acquisition of seven right so what what they're upset about that you know uh, Europeans or people who grew up in European languages can't pronounce certain Chinese sounds. Like my name Yingjie is actually very hard to, hard to pronounce. Like people have really tr- tremendous trouble. They say D instead of Jie. Um, so I'm, a, you know, I, I've been through this. But what I have found really odd about this progressive article is uh, they're really complaining about something that really can't be changed, right? Because critical language acquisitions have, you know, ends at age seven. So so you you really there's no possible world where people do pronounce all of if Asian names perfectly correctly. And I think what is underlying a lot of contemporary progressivism today is uh, an overly optimistic view of human nature. right? And Girard would attribute this view to Rousseau, that this sort of perfected state of nature that society corrupts. Now, whereas... Uh, does, does that make sense? Yeah, so, absolutely. So, so, it, so it's the... The original sin as it gives us a lowered expectation of what we can expect from ourselves and society to make our, our existing society actually affirmable by reason so that we don't go and look at the first sign of alienation or fetishization or impression and inequality and say, we got to tear the whole system down. And, and I think that's a common intuition, uh, a common critical intuition into, into contemporary society.
0: Okay, so the fact that fundamentally in Girard's theory he sees humans as fallible creatures, kind of fallen. He gets into theology a little bit later in his career as well and I, I imagine that he's drawn some quite nice lines between his psychology and his theology work. The fact that he's got that is like a meta comment around the fact that humans are... His view of human nature is fallible, and the solution to our fallibility is first to recognize the fact that we are fallible. So the red pill that he's shoving down everybody's throats is like, it's the thing that they need to actually be able to understand in order for them to be able to see. But the I, I guess the... I just, I just hoped that it would be more hopeful. You know, like being told that I'm... Ruthlessly at the mercy of the high-status people in my society, and I'm either going to positively go toward what they want or negatively go away from whatever the opposite of those people are. What they want, it. it how have you talked to me about you practical, applicable ways that yeah. you operate in your life in a Girardian sense?
1: Yeah. So um, maybe let me make just one more comment about this sort of social theodicy that that, that we've talk, been talking about. Um, the first thing I'll say is, Girard thinks that human nature is fundamentally fallen, so there's a limit to the to the goodness of a society that we can build. But certainly, that does not mean that we can that we should just stomach all forms of badness. Certainly, that does not mean we look at slavery and we say, "Oh, there's oppression everywhere." You know, let, let, let's move on. Let's affirm that. That is not the case. I think what, what Girard is doing is more negative. He's saying, if you take a, a perfectible view of human nature, um no society that you're going to design is really going to live up to that. And you're going to end in this critical loophole where you're just going to start critiquing everything and think that is sufficient for the impetus of change. Well, well that is not so. But I just wanted to clarify that, that this sort of, uh, this sort of argument is not uh, also an argument for complacency, but just placing a fundamental limit on how good a human society can be. Um, in, terms of your, in terms of your other question, I, I think this is probably my fault. I probably exaggerated uh, the the, the determinism of, uh, that that Gerard attributes to to humanity. Um, I think maybe this is going to be reductive, but I think hopefully illuminating the one liner here is, um, we have agency in choosing our social circumstance, but not necessarily how we will behave in those social circumstances if that
0: makes sense. Does this go back to the John Boyd example about the fact that you can foresee things? Okay, so the argument here is that mimesis and our desire to be like the people that are successful and push away from the people that aren't, these are very difficult for us to deprogram, if possible at all. One of the choices that we have is to retreat to a cabin in the woods and and, and completely fuck off. Uh, Another solution is for us to stack the deck in our favor with the foresight that mimetic desire is going to come through and the way that we stack the deck is to be around people that we genuinely want ourselves to be like is that right
1: kind of kind of um so yes it, it's it's fundamentally the the conclusion of gerard is one must design one's social environment right um how in one way yeah so so one way, and this is not necessarily social, again, I'll emphasize, is to do what you like. Physical desire. Because again, physical and medical desire are competing interests, right? Take the example of Joseph Campbell, hero of a thousand faces. He uh, basically left his PhD program at Columbia, I, I think, and he just went into the woods and had read for 10 years. Now, he was only able to do that without any social validation because he loved the activity in and of itself. And for me and Gerard, for a period at least, that was how I felt about Gerard. I wasn't thinking about going on these podcasts or, or, or working on a book-length project. But it was, it was so helpful and illuminating and fun for me to wrestle with Gerard into the mud um, that, that I, I would be fine with little social affirmation. And I think, I think you see this with dating as well, right? I mean, some people, they clearly want partners so that other people can see them with them. And that's where they derive most of the value. Trophy wives or husbands are the most extreme example of this. But if you find someone that you genuinely love hanging out in and of itself, and this goes the same for friendships, then then you can diminish the amount you have to lean on uh, those mimetic impulses.
0: What about desires that we have, physical desires, that aren't adaptive or are malignant or shouldn't be there, that need that mimetic sense to curb some of them so let's say that somebody likes stealing they love the thrill of um, robbing other stores the mimetic impulse that they have from other people who say maybe you shouldn't do that that's a good influence that's tamping down a physical desire that somebody has which actually needs restricting and in that way the mimesis is something that they shouldn't try and avoid but something that they should actually try and lean into
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, Gerard Gerard doesn't bring these uh, punitive or corrective examples up of a lot. Um, and I, I, frankly, I haven't thought a lot about them. But I think that would be uh, that would be uh, a good solution. In fact, the, the sort of closest thing that I that thought about of, uh, given the example that you gave, was actually about how to educate my future children. Um, and you know, it's very hard for people to love knowledge in and of itself. You know, some some people eventually get there. But in order to do so, you're going to have to do a lot of training right? Uh, to get there. And that training is often not enjoyable at all. So I think this mimetic desire, desire to be um, can be that impulse, that drive, to get you over that hump so those physical desires can come in. And that's very close to your example here, right? The mimetic forces acting as a crutch, if you will. Uh, before those physical desires come in. And uh, another good example here is uh, Chris, as I'm sure you know, is is working out or, or weightlifting or any form of sports. It's quite unsatisfying for the first few months when you're doing a sport because you're not very good at it. Um, but if you have a, a desire to be, if you want to be like Ronaldo or Messi or you know LeBron James, uh, then that the man can get you over the hump. Again, uh, this is us creatively uh, interpreting Gerard, which I- I'm all a fan of, but Gerard himself, it's very clear that even in these instances, metaphysical desire is still fundamentally bad because it's still fundamentally motivated by a lie. But that's not to say it can have very important and positive consequences.
0: Yeah, it's it's strange to think about what are the impacts that you get from other people that pull you along in a good way. So, for instance, going to the gym, a lot of people might go to the gym because of the way that it makes them look to other people. Now, the right. byproduct of them going to the gym and them looking Health. good to other people. They're going to be healthier. They're going to live longer. They're going to have higher bone density and muscle mass and the myriad of things that you get out of exercise. But that is, I guess that that's just a fluke. That's a fluke that the metaphysical desire of the signal that going to the gym and the sort of body that you get happens to align with something which is physically good for yourself. And I I would guess the sort of uh, race to the bottom and the way that Groups of people tend to converge on stuff a lot of the time the metaphysical desire that emerges as a collective isn 't necessarily what 's optimal for the individual on their own there 's a, a a blog post called "What do you Want to Want by Kyle eschenroder mm-hmm. and i must I must quote it once a week to people right and he, I have he to read it yeah. he asks the question, "What do you want to want now that 's a really interesting question not what do you want what do you want?" to want? What are right. the desires that you want yourself to have? Right. And it's the same as the, is it Aristotle or Seneca or someone that says, uh, if a man knows not where he sails, no wind is favorable. Hmm. Right, and, and the problem that you have is you can't turn the wind off, right? There's always going to be wind and there's always going to be destinations. But right. if you're not careful, if you don't look at your desires, if you don't assess where you are and genuinely what you want to want from life, you can end up in a place not only that you didn't mean to get to, but that you don't even want to be.
1: Yes, and so that's that's all great. And I think you're hitting on core Girardian intuitions. And the landscape where he discusses this is actually in uh, the political culture of the day. So the long story short is that in pagan society, he thinks that there was mimetic pressures to kill victims. And in contemporary society, there's mimetic pressure to protect victims. Now, Gerard would say that today, someone uh, uh, you know who's trying to protect victims out of mimesis is fundamentally better than someone converging to a worse form of mimesis, trying to kill victims. But it's still mimesis nonetheless. And maybe to project it into your example that you gave, we can say that uh, maybe a good outcome is if metaphysical desire— overlays with, with physical desire. Um, however, in so far as you are pushed by metaphysical desire, I would wager that you are not fully your own man or woman, because if the, as you say, the winds slightly tilt another way, and instead of, you know, working out, it's, uh, I don't know, jumping off a cliff or something like that, then you will be equally lean towards that. So to your point, the, the, the success is, is trivial or accidental. Now, another problem that comes with this approach of being motivated by metaphysical desire, even if it's to a direction that you want, is twofold. One, you may overdo the thing, right? Think about, uh, you know, bodybuilders injecting, uh, you know, to, uh, if you don't do it for health, you're doing it for, to, to show off, and you can easily go above and beyond what health dictates and actually harm your health, as you, as you well know. Um, and the other thing, and this is, I think, why Gerard thinks it's fundamentally bad, is it's very tiring to be motivated that, by that force. And, and I think anyone who's been motivated by such a social force can, can, discuss, can discuss that uh, or, or can relate to this, that when you lose, it's a sort of existential despair. And when you win, it's not sort of an overabundant, overflowing, everlasting joy, but almost a sense of relief. And so we may say that it's better for metaphysical desire to be directed at good things and to align your physical desire there's still fundamental problems with being motivated by it, or at the very least, it too much.
0: In that same blog post, What Do You Want to Want?, he talks about how other people's heads is a terrible place for your self-worth to live. That a lot of the time, when people do things now, they're not doing them for the joy of themselves. They're doing them for what it says about them. They're doing it for the tweets that are then subsequently going to come, or the likes or the comments on an Instagram page. And It is incredibly fragile when you think about the fact that you could do something not because you want to do it, but because you think other people will like the fact that you've done it. That does basically put your entire sense of self-worth and fulfillment and direction in life in the hands of other people. Now, I had a discussion with Michael Malice, my mate, and he said he believes that a large proportion of the population fundamentally doesn't have agency or a personality and that these people are better off trying to model people that have been successful because if they were left to their own devices they would get things wrong he has a very uh uh even less um hopeful Charitable. view, i think of human nature than than gerard does but his point is as far as he's concerned a lot of people are idiots and therefore they would fuck up if you left them on their own what they need yeah. to do is to actually model off people that do know what they're doing, because that's going to have this trickle-down effect of at least making the people at the bottom a little bit less shit.
1: Yeah, you know, um, this is, I think, if I may reframe our our conversation as any uh, annoying analytical philosopher does, we've discussed before how can metaphysical desire, even though ultimately bad, be good for the individual, right? That it can you know, push us to work out and get us over the hump where physical desire can take over. But now I think what you're asking is, but how can it be good for society? And this is a question that Girard himself really has to wrestle with. Because Girard, uh, despite being a Christian, believes in human evolution. And so there must be a functional value. It's got to be adaptive. For metaphysical desire. And What is that functional value? Girard basically thinks, uh, or rather, I think, I read into Girard that metaphysical desire and mimesis, help us uh, organize in very, very large groups. Have you ever read Sapiens, by any chance? Yes. Yeah, so so in it, right, it, it describes a uh, competition between Homo erectus, uh, Neanderthal, to, to us, Homo sapien. And I think one of the big differences, I may butcher this, is that erectus and Homo sapiens, I'm sorry, erectus and Neanderthal can only uh, organize up to a certain limit, right? Uh, this is, I, I don't know if it's Dunbar's number, but there's a fundamental limit. Whereas humanity is able to, we're still seven billion people and we're still somewhat successfully organizing. What is that? Girard's answer here is that we are not special as creatures because of our ability to gain access to truth. Animals do this all the time, echoloc- echolocation, magnetic fields. We are special because we can believe in lies insofar as we look around and see other people believing in lies as well. Now, the less provocative way of saying that is we can use mimesis to spin up helpful fictions, the Greek gods, fiat money, cryptocurrencies, to organize massive amounts of, of society and, and to sort of structure society beyond Dunbar's number. It's our ability to believe in lies and follow the herd that that, that is what got humanity here today. And one more thing that I w- would like to point your readers to, excellent book written by, by, by the professor I studied with called Rousseau's Theodicy. And Rousseau identifies a very similar drive, uh, like metaphysical desire and mimesis. He called it amor prop, the desire for self, for esteem, for social recognition. And to quote him, I'm going to paraphrase, to this we must attribute all of our rapists, all of our criminals, all of the worst of humanity, but also our entrepreneurs, our artists, and our great generals. To this drive, all of humanity, what makes humanity uh, interesting, we must attribute. And that is really how core, mimesis and metaphysical desire is, that it can be amazing for societies, that it could be greatly helpful of individuals, but Gerard thinks it is ultimately suffocating for the person who is motivated by it.
0: One of the first times I think I ever heard Gerard be spoken about was Peter Thiel. So I recently went and facilitated a conversation with him a couple of weeks ago, which was very nice. He was very lovely. We had a good chat. Um, But I wonder why it is that so many people in positions of power hold Gerard in high regard. He's like the sort of hot new girl philosopher of Silicon Valley at the moment.
1: Yeah, um, that, that, that's true. And I think you know the first thing I'll say is that there's probably a form of mimetic, mimetic theory going on here um, that, uh, th- I and mean, this is certainly how I got into mimetic theory, is uh, wanting to be like Peter, right? Uh, and, and obviously I had other role models growing up, you know, George Soros, Ray Dalio, these, these people who are able to combine um, you know, very interesting ways of thinking with worldly action. But Peter was definitely up there. And I definitely got into Gerard in the very beginning uh, through, through, through Peter. And, and, and I think that's true for probably most people you see um, of a wanting to, to, to be like him. Now, this is, an, this is quite interesting, a phenomenon, I would say, because, you know, any other theory— to say that you like it just because other people like it is uh, a negative to that theory. Oh, you know, you, you, you just like uh, David Graeber because other people like David Graeber. But one is hard to say the same about memetic theory, because that's exactly what memetic theory predicts, right? Because if you're saying, like, look, mimetic theory really has very little value, then you're like, well, why do people like it? Oh, well, because other people like it. Then you're like, well, then it does have a lot of value. Because that's Fucking exactly.
0: unfalsifiable, man. I told you this earlier yeah, on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, now, the, the, the other thing that I'll say here is uh, I, I think we shouldn't shy away from such a genealogy. For example, that uh, you know, I, I got into a, a thing uh, b- because of mediation. Um, as we've discussed already with uh, education, with uh, working out, many of the times we. We do get into it with a thing not knowing what the physical experience is, right? And, and it's almost a tautology because how can you know what the thing is before you get into it? Um, now, I think what's important is whether, you, uh, whether you're still mediated by that, right? Uh, going forward or, or like me, you know, you just gained a, a love for the, for the subject itself. But I think there's another answer beyond this. And I think we'd be giving Peter too much credit if we say, you know, it's, it's just Peter. Now, my answer isn't going to take the shape of saying... There's something important and crucial about memetic theory, which I think there is, that makes people successful. Instead, I think that there is a confounding variable that leads people both to success and memetic theory. Does, does the shape of my answer before I actually give it make, make sense? That it's not memetic theory that gives us something. It's that something leads people who are already predisposed to success to memetic theory. And I think the answer there is arrogance and pride and delusion. Now, I'm going to have to give you two arguments here, why I think that's necessary for, for, for worldly success or helpful for worldly success, and the other is you know, why people like that are attracted to Gerard. I'll give the second one first. It's easier to give. As we mentioned, this desire to be, metaphysical desire, is a yearning to exist in great measure. I think then that Gerard's psychology is incredibly limited, and what it describes really, really well is the psychology of the prideful person. Think about it. What are Gerard's uh, canonical examples, clauswitz Holderlin, Napoleon, uh, Don Quixote, right? the Casanovas and the coquettes of the world, people who are really, really prideful. And the type of psychology that Girard describes, you know, envy at the slightest uh, tremor and existential despair as, uh, you know, you glance at your friend and he's doing slightly better than you. Well, 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 some of us may share that to a degree. It's only the people who are extremely prideful who, who sort of really experience that. So Girard is really giving us the psychology of pride here. And I think uh, people who are naturally prideful and, and arrogant, such as myself when I came to Girard, we naturally gravitate towards this theory because it explains us so well. You know, Nietzsche tells us that uh, you know, the philosophies we choose to write, far beyond an objective capture of human nature, is actually a deeply subjective confession of who we actually are. Well, I will add to that, then so must be the philosophies we choose to read right we naturally gravitate towards the types of psychology that and, and phenomenological experience that conforms to our own and, I, and so i so i think uh people who are prideful and arrogant are, are more attracted to Girard uh because um that that he describes a psychology of pride now you know i have to proceed on my uh second prong of my argument for why i think because i i've drawn the link with pride to mimetic theory now I have to draw the link between pride and worldly success. And I think the way I'm going to do this is, is by drawing um, uh, an example. Uh, or let me, let, me, let me give you a few examples of why I think pride, arrogance, delusion are, are if not necessary, certainly helpful for worldly success. Um, think about what you would have said if you were Elon's friend and he told you he wanted to not only you know, change the way that cars were powered, but also send a rocket to Mars. Right? Think about... Uh, what what you'd have said to to Peter and Joe when they were starting Palantir? And this is what people said: "You're going to sell government? You're going to sell the, the CIA software? That's ridiculous, right?" And you know this is not only true for worldly action in industry, but also for philosophy. You know, so I've been told. You know, Adorno and Horkheimer, the founders of the Frankfurt School, you know, tremendous influence uh, on the political left, uh, were extremely arrogant. You know, believing themselves in their thirties to have cognized, um. Uh, sort of, you know, the fundamental logic of philosophy or something like that. And in my own life, uh, you know, I would consider myself you know, somewhat successful. And again, all the most important moves, right? I was a middling student in China, going to a public school in Canada. And I wanted to get an Ivy League. I wanted to study CS as an international kid, and I wanted a full ride. And I was delusional. And people thought that I was delusional. The same thing with Gerard. You know, as a 20-year-old, you're going to tell me you're going to read all of Gerard's canon by yourself, and you're going to create a lecture series, and you're going to title, you have the arrogance to title your book Completing Gerard as your, as your first book. What, what ridiculous arrogance is that? You know, we'll, we'll see whether this ends up being a laughingstock or not. But the point is, it's almost in the nature of success to conceive of oneself as greater than one currently is. To be prideful, to be arrogant, to be delusional. And I think we can find philosophical grounding for this argument in one of my favorite essays, Nietzsche's uh, Uses and Abuses of History for Life. In it, he argues the fundamental place of action in in, in the world comes from a place of untruth, a delusion in one's ability, and a delusion in how important achieving that thing is going to make me feel, and a delusion in the importance of that thing to the world. We need to be deluded to have that extra boost to carry it forward. And I think once framed in this slide, this actually ties back very nicely to what we discussed about metaphysical desire. If you're just in there to lift, to be healthy, but I'm lifting because the nature of my existence is dependent on it, then I'm probably going to beat you because I'm just going to be so much more motivated. Now, Gerard thinks that I'm going to have a worse life than you, but but we're not talking about good or bad lives. We're talking about worldly success here, right? So that is the shape of my argument that there's a layer of mimesis, uh, mostly through Peter, that brings people into Girardian theory, and people stay there because it captures the psychology of pride, which is also what I think to be a necessary, if not deeply helpful psychology for worldly success.
0: Well, pride and arrogance are one hell of a fuel source to drive you forward. Of course. You're right. that The interesting thing about imposter syndrome is that a lot of the time it's justified, especially when you're trailblazing. This was what Seth Golden said. He's like, look, if you've never done a thing before, imposter syndrome isn't some maladaptive psychological trait. It's a realistic positioning of your capacities and the challenges that you're coming up against. Right. Now, the problem is if you continue to disprove it in the real world and then it persists, that's imposter adaptation, which is a malignant version of it. But imposter syndrome is just you knowing what you've done before and then looking at the challenge in front of you and going, I haven't done that. I, I I don't really know. So what you're saying is that arrogance, pride, sort of a self-belief, deceit, all of this, what it does is it enables to people, uh, people to think above and beyond what their capa- capacities are now. In the current moment. Yes.
1: Precisely. And, and again, right, this can go terribly, terribly wrong. And for each Elon, we can point to, you know, Hundred Elizabeth Holmes Selection, or something like the, that.
0: Whatever it is, survivorship bias. Survivorship bias, right. So, bastard, so,
1: yeah. so I'm not making the argument that, you know, all you have to do is be delusional and prideful. You obviously have to be very, very skilled to eventually justify that delusion. But I think the argument I'm making is that, you know, that, that specific forms of delusion, of untruth, of a refusal to meet with reality in the moment is deeply, deeply, uh, you know, helpful for worldly activity.
0: Well, it seems to be that way you know, you see or hear these guys speak. And I think this is as well one of the reasons why when people hear, you know, George Soros or Bill Gates or these, you know, people that have become incredibly wealthy or powerful, when they hear them speak, there is a little bit of a a suspicion that they're part of some reptilian race or a new world order that's trying to take over everything because it seems quite detached, right? Remember that these people have selected for the top 1% of the top 1% of the top 1% of pretty much everything that you need to get yourself there. In fact cool story. One of my friends in Austin works for a recruitment company, recruiting high-powered executives for startups, right? So this guy has access to the hitters of the hitters for the biggest companies and the fastest growing startups in the world. And he was telling me that he was able to go into the files that they had and go back to see a bunch of executives that are now at huge companies and read their files from five or 10 years ago. So the way that they do their Mm. interviews is they sit down for between five and 10 hours and they just talk. There's a framework that they follow, but it's not qualifications and stuff, it's personality, it's attributes, it's traits, right? And I was like, okay, so tell me what it's like. Could you go back and see that the people that are super successful now were going to be super successful? So like, that's interesting. Yes, you can. The people that get to, you, d- you don't get onto this list without being some sort of beast, but the people that were the absolute best stood out way before, in a five hour or 10 hour conversation, they already stood out amongst a sea of incredibly competent people as being superbly competent. So he said he went back and looked at Tim Cook that they'd had, now the CEO of Apple, and the first word on Tim Cook's report was stood the first word was stood. Susanna Jiki, that looks after YouTube, Rockstar, was the first word on that. And he's like, this isn't how most peoples were written. So you were able to see that the hitters of the hitters were already going to do it. They stood out in the space of five hours.
1: And, and what, what, what does, how, how does this tie back to our, to our current conversation? You're, 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 saying that, uh, you're saying that their arrogance pride even at that moment was somewhat justified or or, or like if not justified by their current achievement by their clear potential
0: yes precisely like most people that go into a job interview they're trying to play themselves up but i don't know whether even the the most competent person will come out with rock star or stud written on their on their interview notes but you go in like you have to exude a degree of self-belief and confidence and the other thing is that everybody else knows that they need to play up their skills too so this person is having to pitch themselves above and beyond not only where they're at not only where everybody else is at but even higher than that again and this isn't saying that tim cook went and lied during his interview but just the fact that he was able to and and these people that are interviewing him they're trained at picking out shysters right they're trained at picking out people that are selling snake oil and they didn't find any and then Tim Cook goes on to be the CEO of Apple and then Susanna goes on to go and look after YouTube. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, the one thing I'd be, I'd be curious to to, to to go back and see of all the ones that started with Stud and Rockstar, what were the false negatives? But that, that, that's a separate, that's a separate thing. Um, but I, I think, you know, maybe to give, give your listeners another Girardian insight here, um, Girard uh, is very interested in why narcissism is such a great mating strategy. Uh, in, in both men and women, uh, in, in men, you know, it, it's a bit more obvious, but in women, it's the, uh, drug conceives as, as a coquette or the fundamental, uh, woman seducer, right? Whereas for the man, it's the Don Juan and drawance analysis is quite interesting for most of us. You know, our, our, metaphysical desires are pointed outwards. We want to be, uh, Tim cook. We want to be, you know, we want to run YouTube, but for the narcissist, Girard describes them as their desires pointing inwards, as a desire for themselves, of who they already are, that they're already full. And mimesis comes into play because you then imitate that desire. And so the way to translate that into plain language is, if I'm confident in myself, then you're going to be like, what does he know about himself, right? It's kind of like that example with the, uh, with the guy and the hot woman, well, what do the hot women know? And said, here, it's one person. What does he know about himself? Why is he so confident? and, and I, so i so i think again it's these like revelatory sort of insights in one logical framework that slowly sort of uh, converts you rather than any sort of uh, you know empirical proof
0: what's the main thing that people should take away from today yeah m- maybe maybe
1: it's not the key thing of memetic theory a key thread um, underlying all of our discussions today and why i imagine as a as a listener It might be so unsatisfying is is that we live if gerard is correct in a deeply ambivalent world right we live in a world where uh this fundamental motivational force can bring civilizations and an entire species into prosperity and glory where it can uh, bring you to new heights but it's also something that can uh you know pull you down make you existentially frustrated that can direct you and so maybe the one thing to take away is that there's, there's no real simple answers here. Uh, and unlike Gerard, I don't think this metaphysical desire is something we always must renounce. Um, it, it, it's something, I think, much more similar to what you're saying that I'm actually experimenting and, and playing around with. Maybe the, the, the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll leave us with then is that uh, you know, we, we live in a world of uh, very difficult trade-offs. Um, and, and, and life is about fundamentally understanding the parameters and navigating those trade-offs
0: jonathan b ladies and gentlemen you've got a new lecture series out that is on gerard where can people get that
1: uh on my website let's include it in in the show notes we're going to release one episode uh every let's say five to seven weeks first episode is is all uh, out already we would love to hear what people think about
0: that's going to be linked in the show notes below jonathan i appreciate you man and uh next time that we're out in austin we'll have a fight with a hobo and and get some tacos and stuff done.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Chris.
0: Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget, if you are listening, you should also be subscribed. It is the best way to support the show. It makes me very happy and it ensures that you will never miss an episode when it is uploaded every Monday, Thursday and Saturday. It takes a lot of work, right, to do all of these episodes. So at least make sure that you subscribe to the show. And also don't forget, you can receive 20% off 100% legal THC gummies by going to dietsmoke.com and the code MW20 at checkout. And you can get a free sample pack of all eight flavors of Element by going to drinklmnt.com slash wisdom. I'll see you next time.